welcome to yet another episode of the new space india podcast as companies are trying to build their own rockets and satellites today in india it brings a plethora of new challenges in terms of space policies and laws that govern their activities so far since isro has been building launch vehicles and satellites by themselves and essentially isro is a government entity all the responsibilities and risks and liabilities fall back to the government and there need not be any specific rule set since since a government body is entirely responsible for it and any liabilities or risks are taken care of by the government itself however now that private actors are looking to do this it becomes the responsibility of the government to ensure that they are conducting activities safely and at the same time it also becomes their responsibility to provide these companies an umbrella under which they can operate without any fear in this episode of the new space india podcast i chat with my friend ashok who's one of the foremost space lawyers in india about how legal is it to build satellites and rockets in india this is a long and an unwinding conversation that might give you an overview of the challenges that entrepreneurs are facing in terms of uncertainty in space law and policy which has to be addressed by the newly formed in space ashok is a lawyer based in bangalore and is a partner at a firm called factum law he's authored multiple papers including ones with me on space law and policy and has been working with several new space companies based in india i hope that this episode throws a lot of knowledge to any upcoming entrepreneurs who are looking to build rockets and satellites out of india this is almost like a masterclass from a space lawyer who goes into all the intricacies when it comes to issues around building satellites and rockets out of india ashok welcome to this episode of the new space india podcast thank you for having me np so ashok we have uh, known each other for a while and i know uh, you are one of the most brilliant uh, lawyers in india who have uh, done extensively there you know your own research in the space industry and uh, in fact you know i've been on many panels with you talking about many of these issues and i thought uh, we should take some time in uh, recording an episode which uh, may touch upon all the things that uh, you know companies have to take care while uh, doing business in india in the space industry so let's actually begin by going directly into what happens if somebody wants to build rockets uh, in india so companies like agnikul like um, skyroot are all planning to build these launch vehicles out of india what are the policies and laws that uh, govern these uh, companies private companies and what is necessary for them to be successful Excellent question NP. Uh so first and foremost for uh, those listening in I have to also make a mention that um, the very first paper that I co-authored on space policy was actually with you. So in many ways I actually consider you a mentor in the in the space law industry so thank you for that. Um coming to the question of uh, you know what it takes to be a, a launch service provider or building a launch vehicle in the country. I think we have to understand that the the law has uh, you know it's it's eons behind uh, you know contemplating regulations for for say SpaceX in the country uh, uh take a smaller problem statement which is which could be model rocketry uh the the explosives act which governs to some extent the the nature of the propulsions used in in rocket technology 
is yet to be updated and it is so draconian in its approach that essentially a person who wants to build or launch uh, you know technology uh, has to has to start at the very bottom by just trying to convince people that his intentions are good and that the design is not intended to to harm the national interests of the country it uh, it's not intended to to aid or enable uh, terrorist activities against the country so there is a tremendous amount of uh, you know a lack of preparation on the part of policy to address a, a launch vehicle developer as such uh, that said if if there is uh, sufficient uh, buy in from the government a lot of these hurdles can be easily overcome uh, but in the absence of that buy in from the government and if it is a case where the, the the technology for launch is being developed by a private sector player for a private sector customer without the intervention of the government uh regulations are are a long distance away before we can we can see our own answer to to spacex emerging in india so let's uh, look at uh, you know spacex or even the us and other geographies you know what bodies govern activities of spacex and you know what would be the equivalent of that in india so the advantage of the uh, us jurisdiction is that i think it's always been an economy that is uh, uh, very oriented or focused towards uh, supporting entrepreneurship and to kind of uh, nurture uh, private enterprises to enter into these activities so if you look at the commercial space launch act of 1984 uh, it it is actually quite interesting for our problem statement because what it does is it does not give nasa the power to to regulate uh, you know transport to space and back the the mandate to regulate uh, space transport is actually with the department of transport in the united states so they took an extremely uh, you know logical and a very practical approach to to regulating launch uh, vehicle services or uh, launch services in general by bringing it within the scope of the office of transport as opposed to bringing it within the scope of nasa so essentially what they did was that they they segregated the the regulatory function for a launch service provider uh, from the actual uh, participatory function of the space agency i think uh, if today we are in a situation where nasa is actively working with and supporting a spacex it's perhaps owing to the fact that as early as 1984 the united states actually decided that they will make a serious push and uh, a serious policy decision as such to to kind of favor private launch service providers to enter into the industry uh, the other interesting facet is that as part of the very same law which is the commercial space launch act there is actually very well defined uh, regulations on on what terms and conditions uh, a spacex or a private sector enterprise can can hope to gain access to governmental facilities uh so that kind of clarity allows for uh, a very uh, well planned uh, uh, you know costing exercise where where a private sector enterprise knows what it needs to do to be able to get access to critical facilities needed to develop a launch uh, vehicle or a launch service so i think just in terms of uh, you know how early they they foresaw the vision for a private sector enterprise entering into the sector and the kind of uh, very serious policy changes they brought about i think today the success story of a spacex can be squarely attributed to to that kind of vision and policy and that kind of uh, you know meaningful action in terms of developing policies itself let's take the example of a company like a skyroot or um, or bellatrix or uh, you know agnicol one of these companies and 
look at the life cycle of them and look at what uh, policies affect them, right? So if I am a company like that, I am trying to maybe firstly demonstrate uh, one of the stages on the ground or some of the uh, you know thrusters or engines that are uh, there on the ground. So even at that level, do these companies have enough uh, you know legal framework allowing them to do this activity? Well, um, so that's a that's I mean the, that goes back to the problem statement, right? Which is that the the laws of the land are are so ambiguous and are so opaque. So if I have to take, for example, uh, a Bellatrix that's kind of looking to develop some propulsion technology for for the space program, uh, the the design itself is probably uh, 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 less of a hurdle because I think for them to be able to come up with the right kind of designs for the technology is not so problematic. But the moment it comes to actually testing those, uh, you know, designs by manufacturing a prototype, uh, you know, to put it very crudely, just making sure that uh, the, the fuel for the propulsion technology goes into the prototype and then it's allowed to kind of, uh, you know, uh, test itself in a facility, uh, the nature of clearances they will require is going to be quite significant uh, because there's a fat chance that the Explosives Act will come in the way. and. The very first hurdle will be to to just go to the regulators under the Explosives Act and see if they're willing to to either give a waiver on some of the the requirements to to set up the facility, or or at least come back with an updated set of regulations. I mean, the last I checked, uh, the the nature of regulations prescribed for what kind of testing facilities can be used for for testing uh, within quotes explosive devices. Uh, it required uh, one set of regulations required that the testing facility should have uh, wooden structures. Uh, when we have composite materials in today's day and age, which actually enables us to test under more safer circumstances, it's anybody's guess as to why the, the regulations haven't been updated. So just in terms of getting the clearances to even test the prototype that they have is, is going to be a significant challenge. And then the next challenge is that uh, even if I develop a, a, a successful technology and, and the prototype clears all my testing protocols and I realize that it's fit for use, uh, the law it, itself does not tell me whether I can or cannot provide launch services as a, as a private sector operator. So this gives rise to two questions, right? I can either interpret this uh, opaqueness in the law to state that what is not specifically prohibited is permitted, which is which is what one sector of the industry is interpreting this this legal position as, or it could be another uh, you know interpretation which says that what is not expressly permitted is probably prohibited. So these questions really don't have any uh, clear answers at this point of time, uh, but the advantage or to offset this uh, policy opaqueness, one one strategy would be to try and engage with the official. Uh, agency of the government itself, which is the ISRO. And I think that kind of a partnership with the government can offset some of the uncertainties created by, by this kind of an opaque policy situation. But in the absence of that buy-in with the government, uh, everything from just being able to source the propulsions uh, necessary or to manufacture the propulsion uh, agent necessary and to just test it out itself is going to be quite a challenge. And even if you manage to clear that phase somehow, uh, being able to answer the question as to whether I can commercialize my propulsion technology, I mean, that's a huge problem statement. And, and as a lawyer, I don't think I'll ever be able to, with the present policy landscape, put my uh, you know signature on a piece of paper that says you can or cannot do it. Because unfortunately, the policies are simply not the clear. So I have a hypothetical question here, or maybe even a real question in that sense. Uh, if I 
have built something that I want to test, uh, you know, in my garage or whatever, you know, uh, as a stage or a engine or whatever it is. If I go out and do that test by myself in India, would I be breaking a law as of today? There's a, um, a more than reasonable chance that you're violating the Explosives Act in the process. Uh, so uh, heaven forbid if you were to be caught doing an exercise of this nature, uh, you could potentially be facing uh, criminal liability, including perhaps uh, imprisonment and, and, and penalties and whatnot. So, I mean, as a, as a lawyer, since we are on record, my advice to you is to not do that. I mean, it's, it comes down to that, right? Yeah, that's the challenge, right? So because a lot of these, uh, you know, companies are trying to now build up and uh, perhaps, you know, even at any moment can try to do some tests. I also saw some igniter test videos from from some of them and um, and of course you know the question is uh, at what level this becomes extremely serious and it will become extremely serious if there is a mishap so uh, i think that's been the basic facet of uh, indian policy making till date it's it's always been to to swing in the extremes so uh, if you look at any kind of emerging technologies in the country um, the it's it's a case where uh, things are largely left unregulated for a really long time uh, and that kind of also incentivizes people to to become imaginative and become creative and and really innovate and and bring a, uh, a new technology into the forefront but the moment the regulators contemplate a worst case scenario or a worst case scenario actually materializes uh, then the policy just swings in the exact opposite direction and suddenly you have a whole bunch of over regulations that you have to to deal with uh, to give you a simple example or, a, or an analogy to kind of explain this, for the longest of time, uh, India was a very attractive destination for clinical trial of drugs uh, because uh, the, the policy was, was reasonably uh, you know, worded and the enforcement record was not, uh, was not particularly problematic for the industry. Uh, so India became a favorite destination to actually conduct clinical trials because on one hand you have an excellent available pool of talent. Uh, on the other hand, you also have regulations that don't seem to come in the way of uh, innovation in the healthcare industry. But all it took was uh, one single public interest litigation before the Supreme Court regarding some of the, the alleged uh, violation of clinical trial ethics in the country. And overnight, the, the regulations pertaining to clinical trials became so much more uh, stringent. There was so much more accountability. And by some estimates, clinical trial uh, rate in the country dropped by as high as almost 80-85% after these regulations changed. So I think that's been a, a, a problem feature of our, our nation's policy making, especially not just when it comes to space industry, but I think in general, uh, we, we always swing in the extremes. Uh, and the problem of either under-regulation or over-regulation is that it's it's not really fulfilling the requirements of the industry or the market because under regulation creates uncertainty and over regulation creates the kind of certainty which makes your business model unviable so i think somewhere we need to be able to draw a balance between the two extremes uh, because with the current landscape you are just incentivizing people to experiment with the policy a little more you're incentivizing dangerous behavior uh, you're incentivizing lack of uh, statutory oversight uh, so it almost makes it synonymous that, you know, it, it almost makes it seem like to be synonymous with business success, you probably need to let regulations and policy take a backseat. So that's not the message that you want to be sending out if you want to attract investment into the industry. 
so you're absolutely right i think we we really need to to reflect on our culture towards policy making especially for emerging technologies in the in the field of space and come back with something that is realistic promotes innovation reduces the the uh, the hurdles to doing business but at the same time uh, not permit the current state of under regulation to continue because of the uncertainties it creates so let's talk a little bit on the more positive side of all of this i think this is already quite gloomy in that sense uh, what can isro do that can help uh, an agnicol or a or a skyroot to be successful so today uh, shar the shriharikota island and the complex that has a launch vehicle operate uh, operating out of it uh, there's of course uh, the area is quite massive they have uh, you know like three launch pads two and then the third one maybe uh, fully now constructed or so on and also there's a second uh, spaceport that is up and coming so it doesn't it make logical sense that there's a consultation process where uh, some of these companies can uh, come in and then they say that they're going to pay a uh, a rent to use a particular portion of the spaceport for themselves uh, so that there's no disruption of isro's facilities and uh, these companies can kind of uh, invest their own money to create a launch pad or something like that where isro doesn't need to bother about uh, investing you know taxpayers money to support these people if that is a workable model so i think that's a that's a fabulous uh, you know uh, that would be a fabulous approach uh, if if we can just get that kind of uh, collaboration going with the the uh, the official wing of the indian state when it comes to space programs and uh, to the credit of the isro i think they they did make uh, they have created an excellent ecosystem of of uh, of vendors that have been kind of uh, catering to to isro space missions but as you yourself have pointed out uh, there's really no ip creation in this vendor ecosystem or this vendor supply chain so i think if isro would were to come back with two things right one is a, a clear policy in terms of how their facilities can be accessed by by a private sector player and uh, the the terms and conditions of the grant of access to such facilities what what are the potential costs uh what are the the uh, the uh, the uh, you know uh, application criteria that will be uh, applicable when when you are applying for the the grant to the facility i think that's one leg of it but what isro could do is to also uh, structure a proper incubation program uh, where uh, startups or companies that are interested to develop uh, launch technologies can actually benefit from the mentorship of isro can actually partner with the the scientists from the isro and uh, generally uh, just just uh, also create that level of trust between what the private sector has to offer and and uh, the concerns of the 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 official wing of the indian state i think if you are just able to to create this culture of uh, working together i think to a large extent what you will see is that uh, the the trust factor will improve and as the trust factor improves you will see the space open up more and more for for private sector enterprises to kind of assume some of these functions including conducting launches instead of letting it uh, uh, letting it be the problem of the the uh, the official wing of the indian government so i think there is a lot of potential for isro to to liberalize its policies to collaborate with the private sector make policies for how its facilities can be accessed uh you know develop uh, a more collaborative program through incubation of of the startups there is a ton of potential there and from what i've heard i think isro is quite serious about it 
So I look forward to to what is possible or what will happen in the days to come, especially with all the reforms that have been recently announced. Yeah, to be honest with you, the view that I can take of, let's say, from the ISRO side of it is they would want to not have a company that is inexperienced, uh, you know, blow up any of its own facilities. So that's a fair, you know, point to take in mind, I would suppose. And uh, in that sense, you know, therefore, just giving out empty space within uh, the spaceport that is not attached to any of its own infrastructure maybe the best way to kind of do it where they don't really care what happens there and then it's very contained uh, because you know none of these companies are planning to build rockets of the size of saturn 5 or something it's much smaller and then they would need a much smaller area and ultimately it's just making sure that they have uh, access to a such such an area and such a facility where they can do such experiments in a place where you know, people are not around or can be hurt in the process. Absolutely. So, uh, look, I mean, the the, uh, the concern is really about the credibility, right? So if, for example, tomorrow a very young company with run by a bunch of people without any credentials in the space industry were to, were to come back and say that I want to work with uh, potentially explosive substances, I want to develop rocket technology, which has a whole bunch of national security concerns associated with it, uh, the state is bound to have some concerns around it. And I think that's those concerns are quite reasonable to expect. Uh, that said, I think what uh, rather than just putting a hard stop uh, right at those concerns, what is possible is for us to, to develop a, a, a very layered approach to letting uh, a company or a startup of that nature make inroads into the industry. Uh, because if there is passion and if there is uh, that, that uh, drive towards creating innovation in this field, uh, you would much rather incubate them within the, the supervision and the mentorship of an experienced space organization like ISRO rather than letting them go out there in, in the, in the big, big wide world where, where they probably won't be as regulated or under as much oversight. So, and we know now that, that private sector involvement in this is inevitable. I mean, throughout the world, we are seeing, uh, you know, SpaceX is not the only company out there, right? You have a whole bunch of other startups and private sector players wanting to enter into the industry. So when we know that this uh, end game is real, that there is going to be greater private sector participation in, in launch activities, the pragmatic thing to do is to, to bring them within the fold of the government uh, so that you can provide the startups and companies with your expertise and experience. You can develop the right kind of um, uh, policies and methods to kind of validate some of these technologies being developed, the credibility and the credentials of the people developing these technologies. And if everything goes well, it's a win-win situation. The state has now uh, managed to, to create a, an entire value chain in the, in the private industry. And at the same time, the, the, the lack of experience and the, and the regulatory concerns that the private industry might have is offsetted by the support and the mentorship of a veteran organization like the, the, the ISRO. So I, I genuinely feel that rather than focusing too much on the problem, which is perhaps the, the nascent nature of some of these companies, the focus must actually be towards trying to find a way where we become the platform on which the, the startups build their experience and build their credibility and, and get the, the validation of, of what they're actually doing. Absolutely. And uh, the other part of all of this is also that uh, a lot of the companies can actually use the ground facilities, you know, the telemetry and tracking stations that ISRO has 
the control center related knowledge or even the integration of the control center to their own uh, you know launch vehicles so those are all the co-investments that have already been made in the country which they can leverage to kind of uh, you know alleviate the investment needed uh, in their own systems and then look at uh, becoming operational and profitable as quickly as possible absolutely so uh, which is why i said i think this is a this is an excellent way of ensuring that it's a win win situation for everyone concerned uh, because i mean let's face it if you want to build your own tracking and uh, telemetry facility in this country uh, the regulatory uh, hoops that you'll have to jump through is is not a joke it is a significant investment just in terms of the technical infrastructure the land uh, uh, but then it's also quite a bit of a challenge to be able to just uh, get the right kind of clearances and certifications for for such a facility so i think there is a, a a tremendous value proposition that comes with with just working with the state as opposed to to working independent of the state and uh, my advice to anybody from the private sector will be to to look at the state as an ally i understand that there have been some uncertainties and there have been some some difficulties in terms of getting clear answers as to what the way forward is but but all said and done uh, the the only sustainable method of of trying to to uh, find a foothold in the in the space industry when you are in india is to ensure that that you and the the isro actually work collaboratively and and i think especially with the recent uh, policy announcements and and greater emphasis on private sector participation i am thinking that that relationship is going to get easier uh, the journey is going to get uh, more robust and we will see greater collaborations that that enable the private industry to to really benefit from the existing uh, experience and the facilities that, that are out there or oh, that's at least the hope that's the hope yes <laughs> so there are two other pieces that comes to launch vehicles that i can think of which are uh, interesting one is uh, insurance because i think most countries uh, that have private launch vehicles operating in them they the state actually sets an insurance uh, you know level to which the company has to take out insurance and then beyond that the state ensures any damages uh, you know being paid out by the state itself and uh, so that is one bit the other is uh, coordination between the private launch vehicles and uh, uh, and the government for in terms of uh, clearance of the flight so it could be you know clearing the the airspace and clearing the ocean and and things like that right um so uh, i think again it just goes back to the the same problem statement right which is uh, uh, if for example we need to uh, bring in insurance for for launch vehicle developers or launch service providers in the country uh, with the present market the way it is it's uh, and i'm just speaking as a complete uh, lay person here the market being what it is today in the country it's probably not the most attractive market for for insurance companies to start providing of uh, uh, you know insurance services for for launch developers or launch service providers because there's just not so many people actually doing that kind of work in the country so uh, that's and the other problem is that if if you're looking to attract insurance into this industry the question is uh, what is the potential liability that the insurance service provider has to kind of uh, address or pro- or cover as part of the the insurance policy So in one of the more recent panels that I was in uh, uh, Purvi Kantru who is a who is a doctoral candidate from Nalsar she brought up a very important point that a lot of countries like including the US and the UK they actually cap the liability arising out of a space activity at a certain amount 
So the insurance company knows that this is the extent of uh, coverage that is required to be provided because anything beyond the cap is going to be taken care of through uh, through the state or or at least it's not the responsibility of the the uh, the insur- insurance holder. But because our policies are are yet to kind of uh, come out on these subjects and even the space activities bill does not yet contemplate a cap on liability. Uh, insurance is going to be a, a, a bit of a problem because for any insurance service provider, uh, the when liabilities are uncertain and there isn't enough uh, of a sizable market, it, it becomes a very difficult uh, business decision to make to really step in and, and provide insurance for, for an activity of this nature. Uh, but that said, uh, it is really not, it's it's going to be quite unreasonable to to expect the state to actually just give a platform for private launch vehicle providers to start doing business without insurance being involved because then the, it's essentially up to the state entirely to, to kind of cover uh, the liability that comes out of it. And that's not an attractive proposition for the state as well. So I think the only way to address the conundrum is for the policy to come out with a clear cap on the potential liability arising out of a launch activity and to then to ensure that uh, that we we provide the right kind of incentives for for insurance companies to really come into the country and and provide the kind of support necessary for for launch vehicle uh, developers or launch service providers and if despite all this effort we still see that gap then it's not a bad idea for the for the indian government to itself come back with a with a way to to ensure some of the government run insurance companies start providing the services I think that could be the the strongest statement of policy support for for launch vehicle uh, developers or launch service providers in the country. When the state comes back and says, don't worry about going to the private sector, our own insurance companies will actually take care of you. So uh, in an ideal world, I think that's what we could expect. Uh, So let's see. I think if you're really serious about uh, becoming self-sufficient and indigenization and make in India, I certainly see and hope that that we will see a culture of that nature emerge in the days to come. Absolutely, and even for the you know airspace clearance and the traditional uh, you know uh, note to airman and notam and things like that, uh, there's I think the rep- process can be easily be replicated also in the private industry by just uh, using the same process that ISRO does, but applying it to the private industry. Absolutely. So, uh, which which again goes back to my point about the importance of ensuring that the private industry develops under the blessings of the the ISRO and the state, uh, because what what happens then is that the state need not develop a separate set of protocols for the private sector to follow in terms of getting clearances of airspace and and ensuring clearance of maritime areas and all of that, uh, because there are those protocols are already in place for ISRO and and all that needs to then happen is to trigger those protocols. But if we end up uh, forcing the industry to to develop independent of the ISRO, then it also means that we have to develop the the same kind of protocols that that the US has, which is you have a a Department of Transport that regulates the actual uh, launch activity. Then you have the Federal Aviation Commission, which will then step in to, to ensure that airspace is cleared. So it just creates another layer of regulatory headaches for both the industry as well as the government. So bringing it within the scope of the ISRO also means that A, you have credible technology that's developing under the watchful eyes of the the most experienced operator in the industry. And two, uh, just in terms of safety and clearances, you can ensure that the the new players in the market are are still coming within the scope of the existing protocols. 
without having to uh, provoke a separate set of policies and protocols to evolve. So I think there is a lot of incentive for, for the state to just ensure that this happens under the AGs of and under their own blessings rather than forcing it to, to happen independent of them. So let's say that none of these uh, takes place uh, in the meantime, in the next few years. You know, let's assume that uh, none of these reforms are uh, put into place for the time being. And some of these companies are, you know, matured in terms of their technology and they have matured in terms of their product and even uh, testing. And ultimately, they need to rely on uh, launching out of other countries that have uh, more, uh, you know, sustainable and also maybe uh, more certain framework for them to provide their service out of. How will that impact their operations in India? And, would, and, and is that even legal for that matter? So um, th- that really depends at, uh, on, the, on the specific nature of the, the supply chain around the product development itself, right? So, so for example, if, say, a, a couple of uh, one or two Indian promoters manage to collaborate with, say, one or two people from, say, Singapore, and then they set up a company in Singapore which will, which will uh, design and develop and manufacture launch technology, uh, honestly, at that point of time, uh, it's in today's globalized world to prevent that kind of an eventuality from happening is almost next to impossible because we are seeing now that uh, businesses can be incorporated in other countries in a span of 24 to 48 to 72 hours. And uh, if it's uh, something as abstract and as intangible as, say, designing or developing a design of a launch vehicle, you know, or a launch technology, uh, you can move move out in a matter of one week and, and start developing your design abroad. And the country loses in the process because what could have been a technology beneficial for the country is now happening somewhere else. Now, but if it is a case where you're developing the, the launch relevant technology in the country and the prototypes or the manufactured products are sought to be exported to a different country, then there are export control regulations that come into the picture. So you need to get the appropriate clearances uh, which becomes quite a bit of a headache because then you have to to not only convince the government of your own credibility, but you also need to convince the government of the credibility of the customer to whom this technology is being sent out. Uh, so uh, that that then raises a separate set of problems. So and today is day and age. It's also quite common uh, for say an Indian business uh, in a non-security relevant domain, like say uh, food products or or say oil and natural gas drilling industry. To actually sell to a customer in Pakistan, not directly, but setting up an offshore entity in, say, Dubai and then routing the transaction to, to the, the customer in, say, a rival country like Pakistan. So in a non-security relevant industry, that becomes easier. But if it is a security relevant industry, which is what launch technology is all about, I wouldn't advise it because potentially you are looking at aiding and abetting the, the enemy country's actions against your own country. So without the appropriate clearances and notifications to the Indian government, you could fall into serious trouble. Um, so it's, it's really a question of whether you want to move the design activity abroad or whether you want to just export the technology abroad. Uh, I think design activity abroad will probably be not as uh, problematic, provided you don't sell your uh, security sensitive designs to an enemy country. Uh, but if you're looking to, to take manufacture the product within and then take it out of the country, Export regulations will be a significant area of concern and, and it won't be easy. So uh, that those legalities will be much harder to grapple with. I believe that, you know, some of these companies can be mature in terms of the product development, but ultimately they may face a bottleneck in actually testing their hardware out in India. 
or testing their entire launch vehicle out in India uh, without the preparation of the ground for drive. And I guess, you know, that is what many other launch vehicle companies are also looking at in many other geographies as well, where they're looking at using spaceports in, let's say, the UK or US or or Norway or some places like that, where, uh, you know, these legal frameworks are being developed for uh, companies from countries which don't have them and essentially providing, you know, the spaceport access for them uh, as a commercial service for them to then operate the launch vehicle out of. So in that case, let's say a company in India is using the Indian supply chain and the IP that they've designed and, you know, developed in India and they're producing the rocket using the supply chain primarily, let's say, from India. But ultimately, the rocket is kind of being exported and maybe the final assembly of it is done in a third country and then operated out of there. See, I think the, the advantage of uh, Norway over, say, in India is that their geopolitical context is, uh, is, is significantly more favorable for, for these kind of sensitive technologies to be really incubated and developed. Uh, our problem statement is just just the location and the, the neighboring context that we have to constantly grapple with. We have China on one side, we have Pakistan on the other, and and these days, uh, with you know, even uh, even Nepal is becoming a, a little bit of a sensitive issue. So, uh, for a potential business that is looking to to develop, uh, you know, technologies regulated by export control, and which includes uh, launch launch technology. Being in a pacifist country like, say, Switzerland or Norway certainly has advantages uh, because uh, security is probably not going to be as problematic as it is going to be in a country like India, where where these kind of security considerations are very legitimate and they're very relevant. Uh, but but the the flip side of all of this is that uh, while India may still justify this uh, for the right reason, saying that this is absolutely critical for a national technology imperative. Uh, national security imperative. The the only problem is that we are driving innovation to go out of the country. So uh, what? Uh, so the long term uh, losses to us is probably quite significant. Uh, and and while ISRO will continue to be at the forefront of India's innovation uh, in in this sector, we don't want to discourage Indians from from being in India when they do this work. Uh, so, uh, so while yeah, the practical solution is to probably go to a country like Norway and 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 do this work there. Uh, I think it would be wise for the Indian government to actually come back and prevent that from happening and ensure that, that there is a mature market for that right in the country, uh, because we want to ensure that the 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 trend or the pattern of brain drain doesn't affect uh, you know uh, space technology uh, because that would be quite unfortunate. I think we had uh, quite a long chat on. Uh the rocket uh, part of all of this and there may be more such uncertainties to to address uh, but for now i think let's uh, you know switch topics to a satellite manufacturer and look at the facets of what affects them at the moment so as of today there's only possibly one company that has designed and uh, uh, put together its own satellite uh, in space in india as a private entity which is uh, uh, exceed space or satellites and other companies are planning to do so. What are the main bottlenecks you think for a company that wants to build satellites and basically sell them, not any, not provide services on top of them, but basically building these uh, satellites for some people who want these satellites and then, you know, putting it out in the orbit. What are the main uh, you know, restrictions at the moment for them to operate out of India? 
So, um, so if I have to again from a from a layperson's perspective, just divide the entire life cycle of a of a satellite product. Uh, in terms of just designing a satellite, uh, you know, putting together the satellite in the country and and just making it ready for launch, I think India is a is a is a very good market to work with because your manufacturing costs are low. You have enough access to a talent pool. Uh, so just dev- getting the product ready is not very difficult. I think the the problem is that if you want to really launch the the satellite out of the country, uh, because let's take for example you are a startup and and you have a uh, you are looking at developing a nano satellite or a, or a cubesat, uh, getting access to a launch vehicle within the country, which would be the the GSLV or the PSLV. Would automatically come at a significant cost, uh, and not just the the cost of the launch, but then you also have a a GST component that will immediately hit you because as the customer you are in the country, the launch service provider is within the country, uh, therefore there's an immediate eighteen percent GST levy on it. And if you are able to somehow get the satellite up in space and are able to provide commercial services within the Indian market. you can perhaps look at offsetting the gst liability onto your output services but if you're looking to just uh, do this as a prototype test case or you're just looking at it as as a research and development exercise for your technology that 18% gst paid to to antrix or isro for the launch services is essentially gone i mean there's no way to offset it in terms of a, in terms of just a tax credit so uh, the significant hurdle would be the the launch uh, process which is quite expensive and uh, not not to not to mention the fact that there's a gst liability around it uh, and the gst liability is not what a foreign customer has to face while while working with isro because then it's treated as an export of service so it's a very bizarre uh, you know situation where the policy actually favors foreign customers better than the customers in india i mean this is compliance of the the bilateral investment treaties at a different level altogether the the only other flip side is that suppose you are able to somehow absorb the cost of the gst the absorb the cost of the launch and you are able to get your satellite up in orbit the next problem is to be able to provide services using that in the country so let's take for example that earth, earth observation is the the objective of your satellite in space the problem with earth observation satellites right now is that trading remote sensing data in the country is heavily regulated under the remote sensing data policy and you can only do it through the official channels of the the national remote sensing center of the isro uh, so there's really no market based approach to trading in remote sensing data so which means that your ability to sell the images your satellite is generating is going to be quite problematic and if you're looking to provide uh, say satellite communication services um for that just getting a hold on the orbit is challenging because you don't know there are two levels of regulation involved one is a wireless planning and coordination wing which in turn has to coordinate with the international telecommunication union for your orbit and then getting access to the spectrum that you need to to talk to your bird in the sky so uh, all those involve significant areas of concern so developing the the product is the the least of all the problems you can actually quite easily build a satellite in the next uh, one or two months but the problem is just to be able to launch it and then to be able to provide services using that satellite those are the two areas you're going to face a significant amount of policy uncertainties and hurdles and if if there are uncertainties at the end of that life cycle then the it doesn't incentivize the design and development and launch itself so uh, just speaking in terms of uh, a satellite manufacturer i think you would much rather just be a vendor that that uh, you know builds to a specification and then 
gets a certain x amount of money for that and and uh, you you end up giving the the product to the the eventual operator and tell him that it it's his headache to get orbit it's his headache to get launch it's his headache to to get spectrum and it's his headache to get the service license necessary to actually commercialize that satellite so uh, but yeah i mean uh, uh, de- development and manufacture is not the problem i think the problem is what follows afterwards yeah and some of these underlying issues are also non isro related because uh, you talked about the user usage of spectrum and in that case it's the relationship that uh, the department of telecommunication has with uh, the department of space and even there there are some problems just within the government in itself because for example i think uh, s band spectrum in india for space is you know heavily only provided to the military uh, as a defense utilization and commercial usage of s band spectrums from space is uh, is almost not uh, possible in the country and you know that has many implications for any operator that wants to use uh, you know satellite s band uh, you know for for their telemetry and telecommand or even services absolutely so uh, look i think one of the the the, fa- the features of the indian policy context is also just the the lack of uh, clarity even within the the various departments and and channels of the government itself uh, so if you look at s band s band i think is the poster child of this problem so uh, if you go back in time uh, you will realize that at one point of time uh, uh, antrix had managed to to work with a commercial uh, you know entity to to develop some uh, services and and uh, some commercial solutions around the s band and then only for the department of telecom to come back and say that look uh, you know it uh, licensing of spectrum is really our domain and not yours uh, so and this is a precious spectrum resource so how was it uh, how was this agreement even entered into with the the commercial entity in the first place so that then led to a whole bunch of uh, internal to and fro and before you know it the the contract awarded to the private sector player was cancelled that led to a, a, an arbitration under the bilateral investment treaty so so uh, long story short uh, spectrum has been uh, problematic uh, not just because of this uh, but also because of the fact that the in the 2g spectrum case the supreme court just came back and said even if all the government uh, departments are on on board with this uh, licensing of spectrum if we detect some hanky panky in the allocation process we will uh, strike it down so ever since these uh, bitter experiences with uh, you know commercial you know utilization of spectrum uh, started there has been a significant amount of hurdle just to to navigate the regulatory context and get access to the spectrum so today my problem is that uh, my equipment has to be certified by the standards of the telecom engineering center of uh, of the department of telecom uh my networks have to be validated by the nocc i have to work with the wireless planning and coordination wing of the dot to to get my spectrum access uh they in turn have to ensure that isro and the defense and the ministry of home affairs are giving a noc for it uh so the just the the number of tables that i have to go to within the government to finally get to the end point of uh, peacefully operating my my network and my satellite it's not a joke and it essentially the barriers of entry then become so high that it excludes a sizable part of the smaller and medium enterprises and only the big players with the right kind of uh, uh, you know financial backing will be able to kind of navigate this kind of a policy landscape so what we really need is for the government to to really uh, talk talk to uh, talk to each other in terms of its own agencies and departments arrive at a consolidated uh, single window clearance program 
and ensure that uh, you know uh, there is complete clarity in terms of what is possible and what is not so going back to your example of s band if tomorrow the government wants to come back and say sorry s band is not available for the private sector if that policy statement is made clearly i think i'm okay with that because i know now that it will be a futile exercise to even attempt that adventure so my entire planning for the satellite mission can can be around the non availability of uh, s band but if i don't have that level of policy clarity i'm essentially operating with either uh, a sense of hope that somewhere i'll get access to the s band or a sense of complete skepticism that will never happen either of which is not healthy for for my business planning purposes so i think just in terms of aggregating the functions of the various departments of the government making sure that they are on the same page uh, giving a clear policy statement as to what is available and what is not what is possible and what is not i think that is that would be one of the most uh, significant uh, areas of uh, relief for for the private industry so i just hope that we get that kind of policy clarity which which today is actually quite difficult and if i remember correctly i think in 2011 there was even an article in the hindu that said the dos and the dot are are fighting about whether or not s band can be made available to the private sector so there is still a lot of internal consensus that is required even within the agencies of the state and if as part of the announced reforms they are able to achieve that internal consensus and project the clarity from that consensus uh, that is a huge step in the right direction absolutely and uh, you were talking about uh, the frequency allocation and there's also this national frequency allocation plan and uh, i don't know if there's any open consultation process for private space industry to voice their opinion to change the way it is you know being planned at the moment to allow access to different frequencies in different bands for the private companies to then utilize them to operate spacecraft absolutely so uh, the the national frequency allocation plan at present at least to my knowledge goes back to 2018 and as of 2018 the uh, the in terms of a private space industry uh, the only insight into the the private industry was through the policy of the, which is the satcom policy of 2000 so if i am a wireless planning and coordination wing of the government or if i am the regulator and i have to to look at whether the private space industry is a relevant part of the ecosystem so i take a look at the satcom policy i take a look at the number of people who have applied for clearances for for satellites for under the satcom policy and when that number is as disappointing as it is as as the department of telecom or the wireless planning and coordination wing i am telling myself that while formulating the national frequency allocation plan the private space industry is probably not the most relevant stakeholder i may probably go to the really big operators that are anyway kind of uh, working with the the antrix uh, isro and nsil ecosystem but the smaller companies are probably not very relevant to to the consultation process so i think till now the problem has been that uh, an uncertain policy translated to a largely irrelevant uh, private space industry and and whatever little relevant space industry was there was 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 a handful of big operators but i think going forward if if the government is truly serious about uh, you know developing in house capacity in space and promoting Uh, space startups and incubating space technology within the country uh, they will have to to bring this consultative process uh, uh, you know in a, in a more meaningful manner uh, because today if a, if a private uh, space op, uh, you know player comes to me and asks me is a particular frequency range available for my for me to use 
after going through the frequency allocation plan i may still not be able to provide a clear answer to answer as to whether the frequency range is available or not i may go to the last spectrum allocation uh, data and tell him that these are the ranges that have been auctioned so therefore the answer that i provide to my client is essentially what is not already auctioned to the private sector as opposed to a clear answer as to whether a particular frequency range is available or not so having that kind of a consultation process going forward would be a very significant uh, uh, step to ensuring that the reforms actually translate to an impact on the ground if that consultation process does not happen for frequency allocation you can bring in all the self reliance policies in the world that you want to bring in but it may still not translate to a thriving ecosystem within the country so when i look at it from a satellite manufacturing kind of a company perspective i can have engineers design the satellite in india quite easily i can possibly even manufacture it uh, to a large extent uh, within india but uh, if i want to launch it out of india then i have to bear with this uh, you know taxation policy that is uh, out there uh, which is skewed if i want to launch using an indian satellite uh, or indian rocket and so therefore it's better for me to this go out and and do that and but if i also want to then uh, you know get the frequency allocation then it's also not clear if i it's legal for me to operate the spacecraft as an indian company so for these reasons i guess it's better for an indian company at the moment to set up a foreign subsidiary in singapore or whichever country to you know one benefit from uh, having a you know frequency allocations much more uh convenient in a way it's much more uh, convenient for them to get these frequency allocations to operate their spacecraft uh, and uh, you know also benefit out of this launch stuff absolutely so uh, i mean to summarize uh, my answer uh, if today a company were to come back and tell me that we want to get into the business of uh, satellites right so i would tell them the design and manufacture in india uh, set up a subsidiary company abroad which can arrange for a launch from a from a foreign launch service provider and uh, your customer segment has to be uh, i mean ideally you would your customer segment should be abroad so that your access to frequency and uh, clearances for providing services will be much easier as opposed to being in, in inside the country so design develop manufacture in the country launch outside provide services outside commercialize outside i think that pretty much summarizes the the best case scenario for a for a satellite uh, aspiring satellite operator within the country but what if uh, some of these uh, satellite operators want to provide a service within the country let's say there is a space based uh, you know iot provider there's many of them around the world planning to do all these uh, satellite based iot solutions is there enough uh, you know legal framework and policy framework available to them to operate within india today so is there a policy framework in which they can operate uh, yes absolutely so for example if you are a satellite service operator and you want to kind of uh, provide your uh, satellite or the transponders for iot solutions the within the the unified license regime of the department of telecom there's always a provision for you to to choose a category and try and make an application for for a license under that category uh but the only problem is that uh for for you to get a successful license under that category you have to have to first show that you have the uh, the frequency available for for operating the license now that is a little bit of a vicious cycle because if there's a fat chance that if i go and apply for a license to provide the iot solutions they will ask me have you got uh, access to the spectrum and if i go to the wireless planning and coordination wing and i say that look i want to to have access to the spectrum 
they may very well come back and say, where is your service license? Uh, how do I know that you're actually going to use the spectrum to do something in the country? Uh, and then if I'm somehow able to, to, to get both of them to talk to each other within the very same department, they will probably come back and tell me that, look, everything is hunky-dory. You have complete go-ahead uh, from our side. But you need to convince the guys from the Ministry of Home Affairs and the Ministry of Defense that, you know, this is not going to be a problem for, for national security interests or, or for the, the defense requirements of the country. And uh, so essentially, again, it, it just goes back to the, the same problem statement that, uh, yes, theoretically it is possible, but practically uh, it's just a lot of uh, communication and correspondences with the regulators, a constant follow-up, uh, trying to make sure that uh, you, are, you are speaking to the right people. And in the middle of all of this, the, the positive update is that uh, sometime last November, the Department of Telecom came and announced that there is a new satellite division within the DOT. Uh, one of the mandates of the satellite division is to look at emerging technologies. So the hope is, although I don't know how this satellite division is working, that perhaps if your point of contact or entry into this regulatory ecosystem is through the satellite division, uh, they might be able to better appreciate some of these uh, nascent areas like IoT and, and then talk internally to the various departments and make sure that you get all the clearances you need. Uh, but but right now, with what is available in public domain, uh, just even something as simple as an IoT solution is, is not going to be easy. And I always cite the case study of uh, how uh, India needed Inmarsat services for maritime communication, defense communication, and, and disaster management communication. And when Inmarsat announced the, the transition of its technology from, from I think, the, uh, the earlier platform to ISAT Phone Pro 3 platform, uh, the, though it was very critical for defense forces, that entire process of just finding the right license category took quite a few years. And it took the intervention of the Telecom Regulatory Authority of India to come back and say that uh, if there is a license category that doesn't work for the Inmarsat services, carve out a special license category for them in order to ensure that uh, irrelevant conditions are not imposed. So if something as critical for India's national security took as long, Something relevant only to the commercial sector, like say IoT solutions, uh, is probably going to face a similar level of regulatory hurdles, if not something worse. So we need to really try and and find ways to address this problem so that we can we can provide that sense of certainty and expediency to the whole licensing process. For the purposes of this particular episode, we probably will stick through the rockets and satellites for now. And then, you know, in the next episode, possibly again with you, we discuss more of the downstream segment because I think there's uh, enough, uh, uh, you know, to discuss more on these two particular topics within the scope of this particular episode. So sure. in, in, in that sense, now, what can InSpace do with this new reform that can benefit uh, you know, like seamlessly all these problems for people trying to build rockets and uh, satellites in the country. So if I have to speak from the point of view of the, the private industry, I think the, the, the ideal expectation or the best case scenario that we are looking at is for in space to kind of aggregate, uh, you know, the Department of Space, the Department of Telecom, the Wireless Planning and Coordination Wing, the Satellite Division of the DOT, you know, aggregate all of those functions into one single body uh, so, that, so that all relevant perspectives from the space perspective to the, the telecom market perspectives can be injected into a single licensing program, right? So I think this will ensure that I don't have to go to too many people and places to kind of get my clearances. 
and it will also bring in a level of uh, you know internal clarity for the government to to realize what are the the full range of concerns that have to be grappled with so if inspace is just able to to aggregate and consolidate the functions of the multitude of uh, departments institutions and and agencies within the government i think that itself would be a, a very big uh, push in favor of the private industry uh if i have to go a level further and and kind of uh, really become optimistic and hopeful uh look one of the the significant uh, areas of concern that i frequently hear from my clients in the private industry is if uh, a foreign service provider or even an indian service provider wants to to step in and 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 expects fairness and and reasonable treatment when when an application for license is provided they the the expectation of reasonableness or non arbitrary treatment uh, there is already a level of suspicion around it if if the operator and the the regulator are going to be the same people so i think uh, if you if you want to project that fairness and the non arbitrariness and reasonableness in the in the approach to applications for licensing from private industry you also need to remove any conflict of interest that can be uh, perceived by the private industry in the licensing process so just taking in space and making it a truly uh, an an institution or a regulatory body that is truly autonomous and independent of of india's uh, space agencies i think is probably a big uh, step in the right direction and last but not the least i think uh, if i submit a license i want to know the parameters based on which my my application will be adjudicated i want to know the timelines within which uh, my i'll get an answer as to whether it is a yes or a no and and i want some kind of a, a, a prediction in terms of uh, you know how certain or uncertain this whole process is going to be so i think if the the government is able to address these three uh, you know principal expectations uh, i i would anticipate that 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 will itself trigger a, a massive uh, you know uh, push for for entrepreneurship in this in this sector from the recent announcement of course you know we know that in space is uh, designed as an autonomous kind of a body that is still under the department of space but we also know that the secretary of the department of space is also the chairman of isro and then you know the secretary of department of space is also perhaps will be overseeing in space so how can all of this work in a way that there is no conflict of interest within the system so i think if uh, look i mean uh, for me if i have to if to take a re- very realistic and pragmatic uh, view of this whole matter uh, yes in an ideal world we would we would want in space to be segregated and separated from from these other department of space or the isro but but if it's realistically not possible and there's a constraint out there i think we'll have to work with that so the the way the government can offset some of the concerns arising out of uh, uh, you know this this close arrangement between in space and india space program would be to ensure that the space activities bill uh, defines the functions the powers and responsibilities of the in space uh, body in such a clear and such a precise manner that we know that though it is embedded into the the official space program of the country uh, the policy mandate is to operate without conflict of interest uh because uh, what policy does is it, it does two things one it tells the regulator uh, what is the extent of uh, you know mandate they have and how much the policy of the legislature will back them up in case of any dispute tomorrow on the decision they take but from the industry's point of view i think when you have a policy that tells an in space to to act in a certain manner 
it gives you a benchmark to hold them accountable when they don't uh, you know follow the mandate of the policy so tomorrow if if in space is required by policy to operate without conflict of interest and and god forbid and in the in the off chance that they actually happen to operate with conflict of interest you now have a policy that that, that gives you a right to challenge their decision making process so i think uh, any kind of uh, close proximity of in space with the regulatory bodies can be mitigated by a clear policy mandate that requires them to operate without conflict of interest so i'm very curious to see how the space activities bill will actually uh, adapt in light of these developments and 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 provide and the the level of assurance that that is really necessary for us to know that th- this process will not repeat uh, the history of the satcom policy one of the things that really shocks me in the process of all of this is that the traditional you know legacy vendors of the indian space program from the private sector they are completely mute in this process <laughs> so yeah i mean um, look uh, at the end of the day i think there is a uh, if if i am one of those really big operators that that have been uh, embedded into the the space program already i think the the level of trust that i have with the indian government by virtue of my track record by virtue of my credibility and that long working relationship it's probably going to uh, to to uh, to it's probably going to address a lot of these concerns for me it's probably going to offset a lot of these concerns from me already uh, so i'm not surprised that for them this is really not uh, not so much of an issue i think uh, the the real area of promise or the real area of opportunity is to is to really give uh, a space for the the newer and the more emerging startups in the country to to make a name for themselves i think so so policy is obviously a little bit more of a concern for the the more nascent and the more smaller enterprises out there because they have to build the credibility they have to build that trust with the indian space program uh, so from a policy point of view you want to support uh, uh, you know the 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 parties that most need that support so i i suppose that explains why the the bigger the bigger uh, the more embedded players out there have been quite mute about all of this so we know from uh, some of the other sectors that uh, normally if there is no policy you know frameworks that are available for some of these companies to be successful let's say e-commerce or many other sectors that are technology driven sectors uh, you know companies have kind of uh, gone around and you know had uh, foreign subsidiaries and used all sort of uh, you know kind of getting out in puzzles and in, in making sure that they are successful and my view of all of this is that uh, any of these uh, developments within in space or uh, or the recent developments in terms of reforms will uh, will not be very progressive that uh, that at least that at least is my position in all of this and i think for some of these companies to be kind of successful they will have to demonstrate that using uh, you know like foreign presence is what i believe because uh, it's just the nature of how a country like india operates and how laws get uh, done in india i suppose what do you think about this so um see i think uh, the uh, if you look at uh, space law as a subject i mean you can divide it into two categories right which is international space law uh, you know from the outer space treaty to to the domestic space laws which could be the commercial launch act of the the us or it could be the upcoming in space brand of uh, policy in india now uh, i think the the opportunity or the challenge is that even at an international scale uh, there is very little uh, consensus uh, to the minute specifics of what is 
an acceptable commercial space activity and what is not um, so that opaqueness in the international uh, you know sector also has kind of uh, either enabled or detracted uh, the the players in the space industry whatever way you decide to look at it now from an indian point of view i think the the problem is that uh, we may my fear is that we may probably not be very pragmatic in our position under international space law itself uh, you have countries like luxembourg and the usa that's already coming back and saying that uh, we are going to make an uh, honest effort at uh, you know commercially exploiting outer space bodies uh, they are looking to create enabling domestic policies that motivate and encourage and validate uh, businesses that are looking to mine uh, asteroids out there uh, but within indian policy circles i think there is still that very admirable idealistic approach to space as you know for the the peaceful exploration of all mankind for for trying to really satisfy our existential curiosity about why we are on this uh, you know earth and and in the larger scheme of the universe so i think there is a a certain uh, drive towards a more idealistic approach to international space law as opposed to the more pragmatic approach that other countries are taking uh look i mean neither approach is right or wrong i think where we stand uh, uh, it, it from a from a pure philosophical point of view there's really no quarrel with with india's approach to be very traditional in its approach to international space law but if the slated objective is that we want to be able to unleash the potential of the private sector then unfortunately taking that kind of a traditional and a very idealistic approach to international space law is going to give rise to its own share of uh, policy constraints so today uh, with this kind of a, of a international policy vision uh, translating to a restricted domestic policy context uh, and and a private enterprise aspiring uh, to to enter into the sector of space would be better served going abroad and and trying to work with some of the more uh, practically oriented countries as opposed to being in a country like india which is still very idealistic in in terms of how it approaches the, the theater of space Uh, so you are right i think uh, it with the present policy context i think it may be inevitable that we look at more and more indian uh, space companies going abroad to really find the success that they want um, but that said uh, i i i mean i tend to be an optimist i still feel that the in space brand of reforms might actually turn the tide in our favor so let's see how it goes i strongly believe that uh, the pioneers of you know who will look at all of this as a successful enterprise will probably have to do this first step of going abroad because uh, ultimately the government needs to realize that it is losing tax revenue it's losing on creating the jobs that it can create uh, within in the indian borders and and i guess it will be a reflection of that which will drive changes in the policies and not anything before that's at least my stance on this i agree with you 100% i think the the government really needs to uh, uh, understand that uh, it's it's no longer just a, a a fun activity right i mean now space is a proper business uh, so we are looking at large constellation of uh, leo satellites emerging uh, we are looking at uh, traditional uh, you know businesses in the field of e-commerce now suddenly uh, deciding to enter into the the domain of space uh we are looking at our own reliance in fact uh, you know acquiring uh, stakes in in uh, space uh, space based businesses so uh, space is going to be a vehicle for uh, for commerce and as long and it's it's not a it's not a case where it's a, a low low yield economic activity i mean we are talking about high investments high returns 
uh, and uh, if i just go back to the example of uh, what finland did after world war 2 uh, to pay off the the duty to, towards war reparations to russia they actually focused on technology in intensive industries so that the margins are higher and and they were able to kind of become a, a, a economic power to reckon with only because of that kind of an approach so i think india really must start looking at uh, uh, space as a as a vehicle for for uh, you know driving economic growth for realizing greater tax revenues uh, for creating jobs for uh, for promoting innovation and uh, and we know now that the spin off uh, benefits from space technology can have a lot of terrestrial benefits as well uh, so just in terms of being able to appreciate the new normal uh, which which is which is what commercial space is all about india would stand to benefit significantly if they were able to to shift from being a purely idealistic country in space law to a more uh, pragmatic and a more uh, industry oriented uh, space faring nation um and and i think that is probably the motivation behind the recent uh, reforms as well so i am keeping my fingers crossed that that we will see this actually translate to the kind of benefits we are looking for for the industry do you get a sense of uh, how the consultation process for in space to you know will happen for reforms in india because we have only seen the announcement come up and uh, after after that there is not really any you know announcements on any open consultation process so um i mean i can only speculate here because uh, unfortunately i've i've not been really embedded into the the policy uh, level discussions at the at the state level uh, but but i would presume that in view of uh, the the in space was not uh, as a body was not contemplated under the earlier space activities bill of 2017 so you don't see the word in space feature in that so i am assuming that the basic policy vision and intent has probably changed significantly in right of the in light of the recent announcements so the next step would be for them to come up with an altogether new draft of the space activities bill to kind of accommodate some of these recent announcements once that draft is probably ready i think the inevitable next step would be to throw it open for public consultations and uh, i would hope they do that and i think that that will be part of the natural uh, policy making process um but uh, but i'm i'm thinking that until the revised and updated space activities bill draft is uh, available uh, that kind of public consultation may probably not just yet happen but i'm sure it will happen in the days to come yeah i mean i kind of want to challenge you on that because uh, i think it may be better if the open consultation process happens first and then they do the drafting i in ideally uh, yes that would have been uh, that would have been the much better uh, way of going about it uh, but but knowing how uh, legislations work uh, in this country i mean not just space but but everything uh, non space as well uh, it, the the initial draft is always probably done with a uh, behind closed doors by by a lot of members of the bureaucracy and then as part of the the uh, further processes of the converting the bill into the legislation there are multiple levels of consultations that open up um but yeah ideally as you rightly pointed out i would have i would have ideally wanted to be part of the consultation ahead of uh, of the draft itself uh but but if i have to really look at the advantage of this approach when i get the first draft from the the state uh, and and what language it it employs will tell me a lot about how the eventual space policy will actually be interpreted so if for example uh, all this announcements of in space is made but tomorrow the the first draft of the policy still looks at it in the same level of opaqueness and uh, 
restrictiveness that the industry has been complaining uh, then probably is just a, a a new brand but the same problem but if the the new draft uh, that comes out uh, has a, a a shift in the language that it employs then i know that it's not just a a, a policy intent but but the government is willing to walk the talk uh, so i think the 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 lack of consultation also gives us a way to to measure the the approach of the state and i mean i am a huge fan of the indian space program i'm a huge fan of the isro so something tells me that but this time around we we will be able to expect the the right kind of uh, outcomes so let, let's see in the meantime what do you think the companies uh, which are in india operating and trying to build these rockets and rockets and uh, satellites can do because of course you know you and i are kind of conversing this in a very open fashion and we can afford to do so because we have very little to lose between just the two of us but i guess you know it's not something that is usual for many of these companies to come out and say openly that this is what we want uh, so i have been always uh, critical of uh, the entire new space community in that front saying there's not enough you know banding together and coming together to kind of create a list of requirements and putting it out more independently so um yeah i mean see uh, there there i can see the i can understand the apprehension of being a little more vocal in terms of what the policy expectations are but look at the end of the day uh, uh, the way democracies work is that uh, the the you are likely to get the policy you want only if you are able to express that this is the policy that you actually are looking for uh so i see what you mean i think one one significant uh, concern is that even within the the members of the industry uh there seems to be a lack of consensus on what the the policy should actually look like so so there is still a lot of uh, need for for new space uh, companies in the country to kind of come together on a platform uh you know form an association of sorts that can uh, lobby and and petition for the right kind of uh, benefits for the industry as a whole so there is still a lot of work that companies themselves have to do in terms of becoming more mature and and becoming more communicative with the government uh the other problem that i have frequently seen in the in the space industry is that uh, look i mean uh, there is a certain maturity and experience uh, that is needed to be able to communicate with the government the right kind of manner uh, so we can't have a situation where uh, an industry representative goes to the government and says that your insurance requirements for a launch contract is is too onerous you need to get rid of it because then you lose credibility right if you're going to go to the government and say that i want to be in space i want to do a high risk activity like space but i'm not willing to to make the commitment by taking insurance for the launch contract um, as industry as a whole loses credibility in the process and and i know for a fact that these instances have happened so i think there is a, a lot to be done from the industry point of view to to not just become technically very sound which it already is but to also develop the right kind of public relations exercises to to develop a highly mature and a formal government relations exercise uh, build that uh, sense of credibility not just in terms of your technical expertise but also in terms of the the business models you have in mind and just the sensitivity towards the concerns of the state uh so i think the the new space industry can do a lot to organize itself better uh learn to ask for for what it wants in a much more uh, formal much more uh, you know uh, clear and a, and a, and a generally more professional tone and tenor uh i think if they're able to invest in these uh, you know processes and and work with some of the people who have already been there and done that 
I think there is a there is a fat chance that uh, the the lack of uh, seriousness that is being uh, you know given to them right now may probably change. Uh, but but that's a lesson mostly for the the industry and not for the government. I think that's a that's a lesson for all of us. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, some of the younger businesses will start to to grow in the process and become a little more mature and the little and and just develop those skills of diplomacy necessary to to be able to to negotiate and get some of these concessions. One of the things that I noticed. Uh at least you know for a long time now is that uh, procurement is uh, something that needs to be fixed in the system because uh, i was also having a chat with general menon for example on uh, procurement of uh, you know space based services for the armed forces and he was of the view that currently the system is in a way where the armed forces indicate what is their requirement and then ultimately it's for the government to use either drdo or isro to then you know provide that uh, requirement and so you have this barrier that the private industry cannot access end users in the government directly for space based uh, services so even these are i think issues that are not uh, you know really really related to like the functioning of the of the industry may not be related to how you know uh, licensing is done or you know how frequencies are allocated but these are really issues of how the ease of doing business and how the space economy within india can be developed and which needs a real fix for all of this so do you think that in space will have an you know any outlook on all of this or is this just too broad for them to like look at it so uh, i mean let's take a very specific uh, part of that question right which is uh, our defense user base and uh, their access to space based services um so uh, if if i remember correctly i think there's a story that goes back to the cargill war which which speaks about how uh, you know our our requirement for for satellite images was actually had to be fulfilled by a by a foreign vendor at a very short time frame so we actually had to buy images at a significant escalation of cost and even if i take a look at uh, some of our uh, fighter jet acquisition programs uh there was that 125 fighter jet program that the previous government announced and then that became a government to government uh, procurement of rafale aircraft and now ever since the recent clashes with uh, china we are seeing a uh, uh, massive uh, acquisition exercises for uh, fighter jets for uh, missiles and and a whole bunch of other critical uh, defense technology so this problem of uh, procurement for the defense forces and it is such a critical subject because you want your soldiers to be able to get the best at the uh, the best of uh, technology at the at the right kind of uh, time frames that entire subject is covered by a very different procurement document which is the defense procurement procedure now the defense procurement procedures uh, like a lot of other uh, public pro- procurement procedures in the country uh, has multiple layers of uh, you know clearances and and uh, processes and vetting uh before a product is actually approved for acquisition by the armed forces uh so i would presume that access to to satellite uh, services say for communication purposes or for for uh, satellite data will probably still be the the same uh, you know problem statement which is that it will have to go through the defense procurement uh, procedures and i don't think in space will be able to to operate into that domain because of how uh, sensitive it is for a defense requirements and uh, the the level of autonomy that our forces will need to be able to pick the right kind of technology for the the right price and at the right time frames uh, so i think that will still be a problem statement for the procurement procedures of the defense forces to address and not in space 
but but they are connected uh, because I think if if for example in space and the Ministry of Defense are able to work together. Uh, they may be able to to incubate, uh, say, uh, a fleet of uh, remote sensing uh, satellites, a fleet of satellite communication, uh, uh, SATCOM satellites. Uh, so they may be able to incubate some of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, newer companies that can provide these kind of critical uh, satellite uh, services. And if they're able to combine the incubation program with a buyback guarantee, uh, that will also then incentivize uh, industries to kind of really make a shift towards uh, working with procurement procedures, uh, and it will it will tie in well with the Make in India initiative as well. Uh, so uh, I don't see InSpace really doing much there. I think that's mostly for the Ministry of Defense and the Armed Forces to to kind of take a step forward. But knowing how critical space technology is for terrestrial conflict, uh, I would assume that this will be a, a significant area of interest for uh, defense forces and. And the sooner they're able to, to, to develop clarity on how they wish to work with the private sector, I think the easier it will be for them to, to make the necessary, uh, pro, to put the necessary procurement procedures in place. Uh, so let's see how that develops in the, ways, in the days to come. Right. I think we had uh, quite a long chat about all of this. And, uh, you know, I want to put you into a spot uh, before I end this episode. <laughs> so to, in that sense, you know, I just wanted to ask you, what do you see as a future, you know, five years from now, where do you see all of this uh, going and uh, what is the picture that you want to paint uh, five years from now? So um, the idealist in me tells me that, uh, you know, we will have a thriving, uh, you know, uh, market for, for space industry. We will see our own indigenous uh, launch technology providers. We will see our, our own uh, SATCOM industry, uh, you know, challenge the, the best and the, the largest in the world. Uh, we will have the finest, uh, you know, remote sensing fleet of satellites from from the private sector. But if I have to really temper down my own optimism and and look at it more realistically, I think uh, five years from now the market will probably be most ripe for downstream services more than upstream services. Uh, I mean that that just comes from from the data about how slow the upstream industry reforms have been in the last couple of years. Uh, so if if I was a uh, an entrepreneur focused on space. I would probably look at uh, how the existing uh, you know, birds in the sky can probably be better optimized for, for requirements on the ground, how it can tie into national uh, you know, security requirements, how it can be used to meet national interests, how it can make the, the lives of farmers better, because all of that will, will tie into the, the political economy around space. Uh, so for me, downstream seems to be the, the low-hanging fruit. And I think five years from now, we will see a very robust and a, and a very friendly regulatory regime towards uh, you know, downstream services that is actually delivering impact and not just uh, you know, looking like policies on paper. Uh, so five years from now, my anticipation and my bet is on the downstream industry. Uh, upstream, I think uh, we will have to do some amount of work to, to really translate policy promises into actual action on the ground. Uh, but downstream for me, I mean, if I have to invest, downstream would definitely be the place for me. Ashok, this has been a, an insightful episode on uh, thinking about how legal it is to build satellites and rockets in India and how to make companies, satellites and rockets, you know, companies building satellites and rockets successful in India. Uh, thank you very much for uh, being a guest on the show. And uh, I look forward to doing another episode that completely focuses on the downstream elements and uh, you know the policies and laws around it and how to scale that up within the indian context with you 
Thank you for having me over, NP. It was an absolute pleasure speaking about this with you. And uh, let's hope for the best. And and let's hope that that the, the the slated reforms meet the objectives that they have in mind. Thank you for having me again.